Greetings, and welcome to Etzheim's weekly podcast, recorded live in Richardson, Texas. We invite you now to join us for one of our synagogue's Shabbat messages. I want to welcome you all who are sitting here or standing here, and I welcome all you who are watching live stream on our YouTube uh, live stream channel, Etzheim uh, Dallas uh, YouTube live stream as well, who are tuning into our Rosh Hashanah service. So welcome to, this is a Rosh Hashanah day. Uh, Rosh Hashanah is known as Yom Hadin, uh, the day of judgment, uh, when the shofar sounds and the heavenly court sits and the books in heaven are opened, as detailed in Daniel 7, and our deeds are judged, and we pray for repentance and for a good year to come. And to get at this Rosh Hashanah theme of judgment, we're going to look today at John chapter 12. If you can put on the overhead and you have it in your scriptures as well. John 12, beginning in verse uh, 34, uh, where it says this. Even after Yeshua had performed uh, uh, so many signs in their presence, there were many that still wouldn't believe in him. This was to fulfill the word of the prophet Yeshayahu, Isaiah. Lord, who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Isaiah said this because he saw Yeshua's glory and spoke about him. And at the same time, many, even among the leaders, believed in him. But because of the Pharisees, they wouldn't openly acknowledge their faith for fear that they'd be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. Then Yeshua cried out, whoever believes in me doesn't believe in me only, but in the one who sent me. Uh, the one who looks at me is seeing the one who sent me. I've come into this world as a light, so that no one who believes in me should stay in darkness. If anyone hears these words but doesn't keep them, I don't judge that person. If I didn't come to judge the world, but to save it, there is a judge for the one who rejects me and does not accept my words. The very words I've spoken will condemn him on the last day. This passage is all about the biblical Rosh Hashanah theme of judgment. The earliest creeds of Messianic believers, echoing the prophets and the writings, put this on the overhead, it was the earliest creed said that Messiah will come to judge the quick and the dead. This word quick, it's kind of an old-fashioned word, meaning the living. Uh, Messiah will come to judge the living and the dead. But today, when we hear, we hear this word quick, it sounds like someone's trying to get away from his judgment. It's, and and uh, when Yeshua returns, he's even going to uh, be able to catch the quick ones. <laughs> but what this means, uh, we see it in our words like quicksand, quicksilver, uh, it means living. And what it means is that Yeshua is going to come to judge everyone who, who is living or who has ever lived. Now, this is not a popular doctrine today, is it? Uh, Indeed, the motto of our modern culture is what? No judgment. <laughs> if you go into Barnes & Noble, there's a huge section of books you'll find on spirituality. Uh, you'll see all sorts of books on things like Care of the Soul, uh, Chicken Soup for the Soul. Uh, but you won't find any that say Judgment Day for the Soul. <laughs> that book would never sell. <laughs> but in spite of the fact that judgment is extremely unpopular, the idea that God will one day judge evil and wickedness and sin, despite the fact that our modern secular culture says that this idea is primitive and, and dangerous, we're not really, uh, we're not really faced up to how much we actually need 
a judging God. How much we need judgment day. And more importantly, I want, I want us to see that this Rosh Hashanah day, how the gospel, which is the Messianic Jewish understanding of judgment day, how the gospel is much more uh, complex and complete than the superficial Jew, uh, I'm sorry, superficial view uh, of judgment. <laughs> sorry. Don't put that on the video. <laughs> much more complex than the superficial view of judgment the average person has today. Now, this text from from John 12 is the very last thing Yeshua actually said in public before his crucifixion and resurrection. And it's all about judgment. Did you notice that? So what does he teach us here? And and in the overhead, we're going to learn four things from this passage. Uh, Number one, we must have a judgment day. There has to be a judgment day. We must have one. Uh, This very clearly says here in John 12, verse 48... There is a judge. There is a judge for the one who rejects me and does not accept my words. The very words I've spoken will condemn them on the last day. Notice Yeshua says there will be a last day. History is not cyclical. It's not infinite. History is linear and finite. There will be a last day. And that last day will be judgment day. And there is a judge. Notice Yeshua says, John twelve forty six. I've come into the world as a light so that the, uh, no one who believes in me should stay in darkness. Now, this image of, of being in the light, it's, just, it's so positive, right? But the image of judge and, and, and judgment, it's intimidating and, and, and forbidding. The judge sits on top of the bench uh, on the bema seat. Uh, you walk in before the judge in a courtroom. He's up on this huge elevated bench, bench looking down on you. Uh, He's never just at eye level with you. No, the judge looks down on you and you look up. And yet Yeshua here combines the positive idea of light and this forbidding idea of judgment. And what he's saying is that without judgment, we're in total darkness. And we really have no idea if you get rid of that judgment, if you get rid of that judgment day, we have no idea this how total that darkness would be. But for example, recent calls uh, to eliminate or to defund police and empty our prisons, uh, let people go without bail, refuse to prosecute crimes, uh, the chaos and the murder and the unrestrained forces of darkness that that would unleash, this would give you a picture of the ensuing darkness of there being no judgment. We have to have a judgment day. There's two modern authors who get at this theme brilliantly. Uh, they show us what sort of total darkness we all would be in uh, if there was no ultimate judgment day. The first is Arthur Miller, called the famous plays The Crucible, uh, Death of a Salesman, many others. He also wrote a less-known play called uh, After the Fall. And there's a great passage in this play that directly addresses our issue. The main character in this play is a guy named Quentin, uh, and he's speaking here, but it's on the overhead, and he says this. For years, I looked at life like a case at law. It was a series of proofs. When you're young, you prove how brave or how smart you are. Then later on, you prove what a good lover you are. Then later on, you prove what a good husband and father you are. Finally, you try to prove uh, how wise uh, or powerful or rich you are. But underlying it all, I see now, in all my arguing, there was a presumption that I was moving on some sort of upward path. Towards some elevation. 
I didn't know what it was. All I knew was that I'd be either justified or condemned for what I've done. But at least there'd be some sort of verdict. I think my disaster began when I looked up one day and the bench was empty. No judge in sight. And all that remained, I realized, was the endless argument with oneself. This pointless litigation of existence before an empty bench. Which is another way of saying despair. Now what is he saying? Quentin, which really is Arthur Miller himself, uh, and by extension, it's the average Western 20th and 21st century person. The average person today, secular person, has given up on the idea of religion. The traditional idea of God. And, and, and the balances or scales. And heaven and hell. And reward and punishment. Uh, and so for a time when he gave all this up, Quentin, he felt liberated. Until he says, one day I looked up and I realized there was no one on the bench. And then he says that therefore all that was left was this endless, meaningless litigation. He says, we will litigate. Which means, you know, uh, we, we, we do argue. We argue with ourselves, we argue with others. For example, we say, it's better to be generous than to be selfish. Uh, it's wrong to trample down weak people and, and weak groups. Uh, it's better to keep your promises than to betray people. We're constantly saying, you know, it's better. Uh, we're telling each other what's right, what's wrong. We're, we're, we're talking to ourselves. We're saying, I'm a good person. I'm doing this. Uh, but Quentin, in this play, he suddenly realizes one day, there's no one on the bench. There's no one on the bench of the universe. He says, there was no judge. And that means no way to say, you can say one action is, is better than another. Who's to say? In the end, everything is going to just burn up anyways. So how can there be any basis for saying this is better than that? Or for saying one action is more meaningful uh, than another action if, if there's no one on the bench? Quentin, you know, at first uh, he felt liberated by this, his idea that there was no judge. But then he was plunged into total darkness. Because he realizes that if you have that kind of liberation, it also means you have total meaninglessness. Nothing you do makes a whit of difference in the end. Nothing you do matters. Uh, and that's where Arthur Miller is. Uh, he's in despair. And that's where we're all at if we buy into this assumption that there is no judge, no judge of the universe. All we're left with is darkness. So there must be a judgment day. Or we have no meaning individually. But in addition, if there's no judgment day, we also have no hope socially. Not only is there no meaning for us as, as people individually, but there's also no hope for us as a society. And the other modern writer who gets at this aspect of it uh, is, is a uh, Croatian philosopher and theologian named Miroslav Volf. He takes on the other modern superficial myth uh, about judgment day. You know, the first myth Arthur Miller addresses that if there's no judgment day, then we're free to decide what to do and, and, and what not to do, what's right or what's wrong. You know, I decide for myself what's right and what's wrong. I'm liberated. And Arthur Miller says, yes, you're liberated, but at the cost of there being no meaning in life. The second myth that people say today is that if you have a judging God, that turns you into an aggressive, warlike person. Uh, the idea of a God who smites people, all well, that leads to aggression. It leads you to go out and to smite others uh, who don't believe as you believe. The modern myth is that if you believe in a God of judgment, you'll become a person who attacks people, 
who's aggressive, who's imperialistic. But Miroslav Volf, he says, it's actually just the opposite. He's Croatian. He lived through the terrible Balkan Wars of the the 1980s and 90s. And he writes this uh, this masterful work of his called Exclusion and Embrace. And on the overhead here, he says this. My thesis is that the practice of nonviolence requires a belief in divine vengeance. My thesis will be unpopular with many in the West. But imagine for a moment speaking to people who, who, as I have, whose villages and cities have been plundered, burned, and leveled to the ground, where daughters, whose daughters and sisters have been raped, whose fathers and brothers have had their throats slit. You point to them as you speak, you point to them as you speak as this, we shouldn't retaliate. Why not? What will ever keep them from retaliating? I say this, the only means for prohibiting violence by us is to insist that violence is only legitimate when it comes from God. Violence thrives today, secretly nourished by the belief that God refuses to take up the sword. It takes the quiet of a suburb for the birth of the thesis that human nonviolence is a result of a God who refuses to judge. But in a scorched land, soaked in the blood of the innocent, that idea will inevitably die like other pleasant captivities of the liberal mind. If God weren't angry at injustice and deception, if God didn't make a final end of violence, that God would not be worthy of our worship. Wow. Here's what he's saying. He's saying, anybody who thinks that the idea that there's a God who on the last day will pay back all this evil, all this injustice, if you you think that leads to aggression, here's what, what I want to ask you. Have you actually ever really been the victim of injustice? He says, probably not. Because when someone comes and does the things to you that, that my people have, done to, have, had, have seen and done to the, have done to them, you will pick up the sword. You will go out and you'll be sucked into that endless cycle of violence, uh, which is one of the main sources of misery today in the world. I've been wrong and abused, so I'm going to take vengeance, and I'm going to retaliate against you. You use the sword against me and my people, I'm going to pick up the sword against you. And Miroslav Volf, he says, you will inevitably be sucked into that, unless and until you realize there is a judge, and that no one will get away with anything. I heard recently about someone's daughter, who was brutally raped and murdered. And the father was a trained military vet. And it took the, this entire church elder board uh, to go to this guy and stop him from hunting down and killing this villain even after the perpetrator was in custody. Now, what do you say to that father? How, how do you appease him? Uh, what are you going to say to someone who said his village burned down? What do you say? You say, well, you know, violence doesn't solve anything. And they say, yeah, right. Says who? Or maybe you say, well, if everyone took the law into their own hands... We'd have a kind of society of, of vigilante society. What would that be like? You think that's going to stop them from retaliating? Ah, the only thing that will stop someone who's really been a victim is to say there is a judge, and he's not you. There is a judge from whom no one will escape, and it's not you. And unless that's at the very bottom of your heart. You're never going to be able to live nonviolently in this world.
And if you think the idea of a judging God leads to more violence, this shows you've never really been exposed to injustice and violence and oppression. You've led a very comfortable and very sheltered life. So what are Arthur Miller and Miroslav Volf, what are they saying? The vast majority of modern Americans think this idea of, of a judging God is, is ridiculous. Modern Americans say, we all have to decide what's right or wrong for, for ourselves. But what I want to know is, why aren't we, like, like Miller and Volf, saying, if we get rid of the idea of a divine judge, why aren't we living in despair? If you don't believe in Judgment Day, why aren't you in despair like, like Quentin, the character in the, in the play? Uh, why aren't you in despair uh, like Volf says, uh, you'll ha- have to be, uh, or get sucked into this angry uh, despair and the cycle of violence, or, or this dispre- the, the depressed despair uh, like Arthur Miller? If you don't believe in a God who will one day judge the world and set everything right, why aren't you in despair? It's probably because you haven't been thinking. You haven't thought out the implications of your belief. You see, Miller says, one day I actually looked up. That's when my disaster started. I realized what it meant to believe that the bench was empty. So if you share that view and you're not in despair, maybe you haven't been thinking. Or as Wolf says, maybe it's because you really haven't ever really been wronged. You haven't ever really been wronged. If you don't have a God, or if you have a vague, toothless sort of God, who's nothing but but sentiment and love and nothing else, you'll be sucked into bitterness and anger and retaliation uh, because you'll be defenseless otherwise. So you must have a judgment day. There has to be a judgment day. And even those who insist there is no judgment day, even there, they're living as though there, there was one. Or else they'd be living in utter despair. So that's point number one. There must be a judgment day. But that's not all Yeshua says on the overhead. He doesn't just say there must be a judgment day. He also says, number two, there can't be a judgment day. Now, I'm being deliberately paradoxical here. And I'll explain what I mean. But the second thing he says in this passage in John chapter 12 is that you can't have a judgment day. And the overhead, meaning you can't, you can't possibly stand in a judgment day. So the first thing we learn is if there's no judgment day, there's no hope. But now the second thing we're going to learn here is that if there is a judgment day, there's no hope. And your life will never be transformed unless you feel the weight of both of these truths. So let's now focus on the second truth. And we learn here not only uh, we, must we have a judgment day, but that we can't bear a judgment day. And Yeshua hints at this uh, about this, the way the judgment day will be carried out on that last day. And there's two principles here. I'm going to put on the overhead. Number one, the judgment of God focuses mainly on the heart. And number two, it's, it's, it's conducted on the basis of your knowledge of the truth. It focuses, on your, it focuses on your heart, and it's based on your knowledge of the truth. So first, it's focused on your heart. Remember this passage we read in John 12. It's the last public statement of Yeshua in the Gospel of John before his death. John 12, 37. Even after Yeshua had performed so many signs in their presence, they still wouldn't believe in him. Despite Yeshua's many open public miracles, most people refused to believe. Verse 42. Yet at the same time, many, even among the believers, did believe in him. 
But because of the Pharisees, they wouldn't openly acknowledge their faith for fear they'd be put out of the synagogue. For they love the praise of men more than the praise of God. So even among those who did believe, you know, uh, they, wouldn't fu- they would not fully follow Yeshua. Uh, they wouldn't act on what they knew. Because they love the praise of men more than the praise from God. Now what are we learning here? Two things. In verse 44, Yeshua, he cries out. We see, he, he sees his fellow Jews rejecting him. And he cries out and he warns them about judgment. Now, who are these people he's warning about judgment? These are the religious leaders. These are the leaders. Externally, they are very good. They obey the Ten Commandments. They pray three times a day. They believe in the God of Israel. But something is wrong with their hearts. These religious leaders believed believed in general and obeyed in general, but it was all in part out of spiritual pride. And Yeshua, teaching about the grace of God, brings this pride out. They didn't like being told they were sinners who need grace. They didn't like it at all. In these verses, 42, 43, it says, Many of these religious leaders, they indeed did believe in Yeshua on some level, but they were controlled by fear and the need for human approval. They love the praise of men more than the praise of God. So the first thing we're being told here is that people who are in danger of judgment here, they're not being judged on the basis of of, uh, how many good deeds they've done or, or how many obedient actions they've done. No, they're being judged on the basis of their heart. 1 Samuel 16, 7. The Lord doesn't look at things that people look at. For men look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Now you may ask, aren't there a lot of places in the Bible which talks about us being judged according to our works? In Romans 2, for example, doesn't Paul say on the last day we'll be judged on the basis of what we've, we've done? Uh, and in John 5, verse 27, Yeshua says, the Father has given authority to, to judge, to the, uh, to the Son to judge. Don't be amazed at this. For time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. Those who've done what is good will rise to live. Those who've done what is evil will rise to be condemned. So how do we square what it says in Romans 3, which says no one is ever good enough to earn salvation, with these other statements that imply that the judgment is on the basis of works? And the answer is that Yeshua has a metaphor uh, that pulls it all together. He says in Matthew 7, by their fruits you will know them. The metaphor is of a tree. How can you tell if a tree is alive or not? Let's say it's May, it's June. Here's three fruit trees. Two are filled with fruit. One has no fruit, no leaves. How do you know which ones are alive? How do you judge between them? By their fruit. Now, does the fruit cause the life? No, not at all. But the fruit is an index. It's a manifestation. It's the result of there being life. And that's what's going on at these passages that, that at one level seem to suggest salvation by works. So, for example, you go to Matthew 25, the famous uh, parable of the sheep and the goats. Yeshua says in Matthew 25, 34, Come, all you who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you before the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, you invited me in. I was naked, you clothed me. I was sick, you looked after me. I was in prison, you came to visit me. 
Whatever you did for the least of these, one of my, one of my brethren, you did for me. So Yeshua here clearly seems to say that we'll be judged by our works. But this isn't saying that social workers get into the kingdom of heaven. <laughs> what is it saying? The list here in Matthew 25, if you look at it carefully, it's not even the list of the Ten Commandments, is it? On the overhead. The point is, the reason God looks at your works is to find out what's in your heart. And on the overhead, again, if your heart is self-centered and self-referential and self-saving and self-serving and self-righteous versus open to God and humble and needing his grace and mercy, there will be a difference in how you live. But the key thing is the heart. And I'll tell you why this is absolutely fair. My ancestors came to America a generation ago from Russia and from Germany in the 1900s, before and after World War II. And some of my extended family, they immigrated to Israel instead uh, from Russia and from Germany. Long ago, I've never met them. I know nothing about them. But let's say that over the years, there were skirmishes in the Arab Muslim lands, and the neighbors they were living near attacked them. And let's say they, they, they killed some of the attackers. Let's say they've been fighting back and forth now for decades in the, in the territories, in Judea and Samaria, the biblical heartland. Lots of violence, lots of bloodshed on both sides. You know, the liberal media in America you know, calls my, my Israeli relatives murderers uh, and oppressors uh, and imperialists. But what if my grandparents had not come to America? What if instead they went to Israel and my Israeli relatives came to America? You see, in America, we've got this kind of social stability that restrains the pride of the heart. And in the Israeli territories, where the majority of the population is Arab Muslim, you don't have that kind of stability. You don't have those kind of social and institutional restraints. Everyone has different environments. So to be fair, God does not look only on the outward behavior. He also looks at your heart. He doesn't just add up how many good deeds you've done. It's some kind of mathematical formula. He looks at your heart and he says, why are you doing the deeds you're doing? What would you have done if you were planted in different soil? God looks on your heart. Luke 15, famous parable of the prodigal son. You know, in that parable, there was actually two sons, right? It was the prodigal son. And there was the elder brother, the one who stayed home uh, and obeyed. But in the end, who's the one who's lost? It's not the one who at first disobeyed all the rules. Rather, it's the one who, despite his outward obedience, his heart was actually the farthest from the father's heart. So the first thing we see is that God is not adding up all your good deeds and comparing them to your bad deeds, but rather... How good is your heart? Are you a man after God's own heart? Are you a woman after God's own heart? How unselfish is your heart? How proud is it? How open to Yeshua is your heart? Or how closed is it? How good is your heart? How good are your motives? Oh, I'm in shul, I'm in Shabbat. Uh, I do good deeds for others. But why are you doing them? Are you doing them for yourself? Are you doing them to put God in your debt? Uh, so you can uh, get from him what you want? Uh, are you doing them to feel superior to other people? Uh, are you doing them to be religious? 
What are the heart motives behind your good deeds? Man looks at the outward appearance. God looks at the heart. And it's the only fair result. Because we all face such different environments and circumstances, and we live and grow up in different soils. Now, the other criteria for judgment, number two, and put this to the overhead, it's not only that God looks at your heart, he also judges you according to the knowledge that you have. And this is the only way to understand this very cryptic passage here in our, in our passage. Yeshua says in John twelve forty eight that there is a judge. But then he says in verse 47, I'm not the one who judges you. It's a very strange passage. So look at John twelve forty seven. Yeshua says, if anyone hears my words but doesn't keep them, I don't judge that person. For I didn't come to judge the world but to save it. There is a judge for the one who rejects me and does not accept my words. The very words I've spoken will condemn them on the last day. Now, what does Yeshua mean here when he says, I won't judge you on the last day, but my word will judge you? He's not saying I'm not going to be there. (laughs) He's not saying, no, I'll mail it in, you know, uh, no mail-in ballots. (laughs) In fact, in John 5, 27, he says expressly, the Father has given me all authority to judge. John 5, 27 on the overhead. I'll be doing it, Yeshua says. So what does he mean here in John 12 when he says, my words will judge you? He's saying the word you heard is what will be the evaluation criteria. Same thing, by the way, Paul says in Romans 2. You know, people are always saying, what about all those who've never even heard of Yeshua? What about them? How, how can they be judged? And Paul says in Romans 2, they'll be judged based on the truth that they've heard and that they know. Based on what you know. Now, the scriptures also say that based on your inner conscience, everyone knows there is a God. And everyone knows you're commanded to love God and to love your neighbor. And everyone knows, I don't measure up. Everyone knows God's truth to some degree. Some know more, some know less. You'll be judged on this criteria. Have you done what you know? When Yeshua here says, my words will rise up and judge you on the last day, this, this, is a, this personification of the word is very simple here. I'm going to put it on the overhead. Whatever truth you know, no matter where you've lived, no matter what century you've lived in, whatever truth you know, even if it's just the golden rule, on the last day it will rise up and it will look you in the eye and it will say, you knew me, but you didn't do me. God will let the word you heard, the word you know, judge you. And every last one of us will be found wanting. Though if you understand this, you should be terrified. Because God will be very fair. And he will judge you on the basis of your heart and your knowledge. But even so, who can stand? No one can ever complain that God was unjust. So for example, here you have a three-year-old and a twelve-year-old. They both disobey their parents. And you punish them. But what do you say to the 12-year-old? You say, you were more responsible. You knew my mind, the mind of the parent, in a way that my my three-year-old son didn't know. So God is very fair. But do you know what this means? This means there's actually no hope for you. Or for me. It's on the overhead. For example, let's say you've come from a good family. Versus the bad family. You've had good moral training. Uh, uh, and you've, you've, got, you've, you've even gone to a good congregation with good teaching. 
that in the last day, the truth that you heard all your life, whether you listen to it or not, is going to rise up and say, you knew me, but you didn't do me. And this is terrifying. How will you and I stand in the judgment in which God is looking at our heart, not just our outward actions. He's looking at our motives in which the more you know and the less you do, the less you do with what you know, the greater the judgment. So if there is a judgment day, what hope is there for us? And if there's not a judgment day, as we've seen, what hope is there for us? So we're in this, we're in this kind of dilemma. Do you feel the weight of this dilemma on this Rosh Hashanah day, this day of judgment, Yom Hadin, when God's books are opened in heaven and our lives are evaluated for the year? You know, the liberal relativist tries to, to get away from this, from this fact that there is a God uh, and that one day will be a judgment. Uh, and, and if there's not, as we've seen, there's no justice in the world. The blood of the oppressed cries out from the ground with no vindication or recompense if there's no judgment day. So when you get rid of Judgment Day, the very justice that these liberals cry for is destroyed. On the other hand, the other end of the spectrum, the religious Pharisees say, well, just be a good person. Do all the external, outward mitzvot, the commandments. And on Judgment Day, you'll stand tall and proud. But God will judge your heart and your motives, not just your outward compliance with outward commands. The view that God is just is, is, is not what leads to oppression. But the view that I can stand before God with my head up and tall and proud because I'm a good person, that's what creates oppression. But the liberal view that therefore we have to get rid of Judgment Day, abolish Judgment Day, defund Judgment Day, cancel Judgment Day, just throws the baby out with the bathwater. So the Bible says, number one, there must be a Judgment Day. Number two, there can't be a Judgment Day. There's no hope for us if there isn't. There's no hope for us if there is. But there is a third principle here in John chapter 12 that solves the dilemma. What's the third thing? Look at John 12, 41. After quoting from Isaiah, the text says, Isaiah said this because he saw Yeshua's glory and spoke about him. So on the overhead. Third point. Number one, we must have, we must have a judgment day. Number two, we can't have a judgment day. But number three, in Yeshua the Messiah, we've already had our judgment day. And that's the gospel. You can't get rid of Judgment Day. And you can't survive Judgment Day on your own. The only way for you or I to handle uh, the, the, the moral reality of the universe is if Judgment Day has already passed for you. The third thing Yeshua teaches us in John 12 is that in me, you already had your Judgment Day. Look at John 12, 44. Then Yeshua cried, it says, And on most translations, that's to say, he cried out. But the fact is, this word in Greek is ambiguous. As as ambiguous in Greek as it is in English. In English, when we say he cried, what do we mean? Do we mean he weeps? Or do we mean he he cries out loudly? The answer is yes. (laughs) It means both. When you cry, there's an intensity, uh, there's an anguish. It might be love, it might be grief. In Greek, uh, to cry tears and to cry out is the exact same word. Here in John 12, Yeshua is yelling about judgment. And he's also warning about judgment. He's saying some of the strongest things in the whole Bible about judgment. On the overhead, he's saying, judgment is coming. On the overhead, please. Judgment is coming, and I'm the only way out. 
the only way you will see the Father. I'm the representative of the Father. If you reject me, you reject the Father. I'm the only way through the judgment. But he's crying as he warns the people, our Jewish people, because he loves them so much. Uh, He's weeping. Now, by the way, lots of religions say there's a judge on the overhead. But there's no other religion or philosophy in the world that says that the judge is weeping. Yeshua is your great high priest who relates to you, who understands you, who loves you, who intervenes for you, who died for you. Yeshua is not only the judge, but he's also a sympathetic judge. He says in John twelve forty two, If anyone hears these words of mine, but doesn't keep them, I don't judge him, for I didn't come to judge the world, but to save it. Now, wait a minute. Doesn't it say in John 5 and elsewhere that he does come to judge the world? Yes. And the answer to this seeming paradox is the verb tense. First time Yeshua came to save, not to judge. And so the verb is actually in what's called the perfect tense, meaning a completed action. But the second time, he will come to judge. He will come to to judge the earth. So the first time he came as a suffering servant, Messiah of Isaiah 53. You see the same thing elsewhere in the Bible as well. For example, way back in the Torah, in Exodus chapter 17, people are complaining against Moses and against the Lord, saying, you know, we're dying of thirst. It's all your fault. Why did you bring us here out of Egypt to die in the desert? And they're bringing charges against Moses. They Actually, they're about to stone him. So what does God do? He says to Moses, take the people to the rock. Assemble the elders. Bring the rod. Now, the setting here is actually, if you look at it, it's the setting of a court of law. They assemble the elders for a judicial ruling. And the rod is the symbol of authority. In fact, the Lord had given this rod to Moses, through which he brought all the plagues in Egypt. The judgment of God on Pharaoh and on Egypt. Uh, so the rod is a symbol of authority, and in particular, a symbol of God's authority. And so Moses is thinking to himself, someone's going to be judged now for all this grumbling and this rebelling against the Lord. So they assemble the courtroom, and Moses, come, Moses comes out with the rod, and the Lord says to Moses, I will stand before the people on the rock. Now, this is the only place in the whole Bible where it says that God stands before the people. In all the other places, the people stand before God. But how can the Lord say, I'll stand before the people? And the Lord says, I'll stand before the people on the rock. And then he says to Moses, what? He says, smite the rock. Bring down the rod of judgment on the rock where I'm standing. And Moses does. And out comes the water. And the people, people, people are saved. They have, they drink. And in this picture, the people deserve to be punished, but the Lord himself takes the punishment. Now this is a metaphor. This is a Torah picture of the suffering servant Messiah. So here's the point. Yeshua is the one and only judge who leaves the bench and comes down into the dock. Yeshua is the one judge who says, I'm not standing up here above you. I'm going to get below you. I'm going to come down into the place where the prisoner sits. The place where the guy in the handcuffs stands. The place where the defendant is. And I'm going to, I'm going to receive the rod. And that, and what that means is if you repent and you trust in Yeshua, your judgment has passed. Your judgment is now in the past. And it's the only possible way in which you can have a judgment, which you've got to have, and yet be able to stand in that judgment. 
Yeshua was punished for you. He took what you deserve. Now, lastly, what does all this mean on the overhead? Number one, we've got to have a judgment. Number two, we can't bear to have a judgment. Number three, that in Yeshua, we've already had a judgment. And then finally, number four, in Yeshua, we now can live between the two judgments. For Yeshua followers, there's a judgment in the past and there's a judgment in the future. And if you forget either one, you're going to fall into some kind of trap. So, for example, self-image. In our culture, you're being evaluated all the time, right? You're evaluated on your looks, uh, on your job, on your wealth, on your performance. There's no secure jobs anymore, right? Particularly this pandemic has driven that home. There's no loyalty anymore, either from employees or employers. People are judging you on the basis of your waistline, on the basis of your looks, on the basis of your clothes, on the basis of your employment record, on the basis of of your education. How are you going to handle it? If you're a Yeshua follower, you can say, because my judgment's in the past, I can take off the gloves about my sin, not to hide my sin. Because I know I'm absolutely loved. Because God has smitten Yeshua for me. Because there's no condemnation now for those who are in Messiah Yeshua. And therefore, I can be honest about my own sins. I can admit who I am. I don't have to be in denial about my sin. If God really loves you and really accepts you, which he does in Yeshua, and if you know it, you can be absolutely honest about your flaws. I can be honest with you about them, and you can be honest with me about mine. But on the other hand, at the same time, we know we're valued in Yeshua. We know we're loved in Yeshua. Look what he did for me. He's weeping. He's the judge who loves you so much, he weeps. He leaves the bench. He comes down into the dock. How are you going to get the ability to admit your sins and at the same time be completely comfortable with who you are in Messiah Yeshua? It's only possible if there's a judgment behind you. And at the same time, there's a judgment ahead as well. For you know, the Lord wants us to live holy and godly lives. And we will be judged based on what we've done in this life for rewards in the, in the, in the, in, in the kingdom of God. And then finally, how do you live in a pluralistic society when people around you are so different from you? You know, the relativist, the relativist says there's no right and wrong. So don't make any judgments. And yet they judge people all the time, don't they? On the basis of their enlightened liberal views. And then the traditionalists, on the other hand, look down uh, on the failures and the nonconformists. But the believer doesn't say either of these extremes. The believer says, my judgment is behind me, which means I deserve to be punished so I don't feel superior to anybody else. And at the same time, I realize there is a judgment in the future. Uh, so out of love and out of concern, I can call you out when I think you're wrong and warn you with a danger to come. How are you going to forgive people unless you realize that you too are a sinner? And therefore you don't have a right to judge others finally because you don't have the ultimate knowledge of how to judge them. Because there is a judge and he's not you. How can you live with integrity and and oppose injustice but also do so humbly and with forgiveness without the need to prove yourself? Only if you know you're living between these two judgments. These two judgment days. Yours is in the past. The world's is in the future. So you live with hope, but also with humility. You admit your sin, but you also know that the only eyes 
uh, the whole universe who fully know you also fully love you and accept you at the same time in Messiah Yeshua. So in all my affliction and persecution, with uplifted head, may I wait for the judge from heaven, who's already offered himself to the judgment of God for me, and has removed from me all curse. Amen. Hallelujah. Let's stand and pray. The music team to come on up. Father, we thank you today on this Rosh Hashanah day. This day when the books are opened. We thank you for Judgment Day because we know without it that the world would be meaningless. And the world would descend into chaos and darkness and death. Without your final judgment, Lord, violence and injustice and evil would win. So your promise of a future judgment. We all must stand before you and give an account. This both on the one hand restrains evil. And on the other hand enables the righteous uh, to, let, to let you be the judge. And not take judgment into our own hands. Yes Lord one day you will set all things right. No one will get away with anything. And that makes judgment day terrifying for us as well. Because we know we're not innocent. We're guilty. We sin. We're sinners who also deserve judgment. So even though we, we need a judgment day against evil, we ourselves cannot stand in judgment day. We're naked and exposed and guilty before you, Lord. We need to be clothed in your righteousness. We have knowledge of you, Lord, and of your word, and so we're without excuse. The truth is our heart is not pure. There is darkness hidden there. We need a new heart. And it's you, Yeshua, who gives us the new heart and who puts your new spirit, your spirit, a new spirit within us. Because you suffered on judgment day on our behalf. You, Yeshua, are our Rosh Hashanah judgment. You, Yeshua, are our Yom Kippur atonement. Your death and resurrection is our door to life if we repent and trust in you. You, Yeshua, who knew no sin, became sin for us so that if we abide in you, we in turn become the righteousness of God in you. May it be so on this Rosh Hashanah day. In your name we pray. Amen. Shabbat Shalom.